We at the What Rules Podcast are dedicated to helping multicultural women like you outsmart the game to advance their careers through rule-breaking strategies. That's why we are thrilled to announce the What Rules Leadership Conference coming this October for you and your manager. Our half-day virtual leadership event is developed specifically for women of color and their managers. And together, we'll address pressing need to redefine the face of leadership and break the rules to elevate multicultural women in the workplace. So come and break the rules with us and change the face of leadership on October 25th, 2023. We will have more information soon. So save the date, follow us on social media for the latest, and we cannot wait to see you there. everyone. We're so glad you're here. I'm Elisa Monjadas. I'm a marketing leader and executive coach. I'm Courtney Copeland, and I'm an accountability and wellness coach. And I'm Dr. Mirari Simeon, an activator of talent, HR executive, author, and working mom. If you're anything like the successful multicultural women we interview on the What Rules podcast, you've learned that you can't do it alone. And we teach women like yourself to outsmart the game to get ahead in your career. We're really talking about those rules that we grew up with as women and expectations that have been placed on us. Our mission is to change the face of leadership at What Rules Podcast. As you listen to our talented guests, take note and take action. Go ahead, go and break those rules. You guys, this year, my grandmother turns 92 And I'm just so happy to have her in my life. And one of the things that she taught me a long time ago was you always have to have a meeting before the meeting. Come on, Grandma. She was VP at a bank. She climbed the ladder. She was a secretary. And then her way of getting promoted, she would just say, like, excuse me, but I can do that other job and it pays more. Can I apply for it? And then she would just, like, climb and climb and climb and climb. Get it, Grandma. One thing that she's taught me is that she learned in banking was that the real meeting doesn't actually happen in the meeting. And I wanted to get your feedback on that. What do you think? Well, first of all, we should have your grandma on here, right? Because she was obviously breaking rules very early before it was even allowed. And then I would say, whether we realize it or not, we're always having a meeting before the meeting. I think even for my personal life, right? Like sometimes I have to have a meeting with my husband before we go talk to the kids. You know, <laughs> It's like we got to align on what we're going to say and we're going to stand our ground even if they, you know, push back. And, <laughs> and it's still in corporate America. I do too. I don't know, Courtney and Monique, what's your experience been? Well, I would definitely say the meeting before the meeting is clutch because leaders, like any other human, do not like surprises. And you'll learn really quickly if you do not have the meeting before the meeting that it will be um, it'll be challenging and it could be a disaster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and nobody wants that. So, so important. I mean, you need to know who your advocate is. You need to know who is not aligned. You need to know who's going to be that silent supporter. And quite frankly, you just need to know who wants to help you get it across the finish line. So that meeting before the meeting, it is everything. And go grandma for knowing that because <laughs> I think a lot of us learn the hard way, the importance of the meeting before the meeting. And we forget the most important part, which is don't surprise yep. the leaders. 
I love that. So I'm curious, Alisa, do you do that well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've learned it forever. So I think that I've gotten things done because of those meetings before the meetings. You learn, just like Monique laid out, like you learn who your allies are, who your advocates are. And like you, Miradi, coming in lockstep with your husband, that is how, especially if I'm a leader of one of the meetings, I want to make sure I'm aligned with the other leaders and we're not confusing everyone. But as like an underling, when I was a nobody, you know, um, that I... You were always a somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I know I shouldn't say that. But I I was a somebody because I talked to the right people. And then when I showed up in the meeting, no one looked at me as a nobody because I had already aligned with the CEO or whoever was leading the call or whatever I wanted to achieve. And also, it was harder for me to use my voice and show up confidently in a big meeting. But I could do it one-on-one. So I would talk to someone beforehand, and then they would call on me and give me that permission. What a blessing to be able to get that early on in your life. Oof. We have a really awesome guest. I'm so excited to have her. Monique, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are. You have some personal affiliations with this group. So. Tell us oh, everything. Right. Ooh, tell us everything. Okay, I feel like we're going on a date together. Yeah, this what are good. all the hats that you wear? Oh, a lot of hats. <laughs> yes. So uh, I'm Monique Leno. Uh, let's see. I am a dear friend of Marari Simeon. We met many years ago. True story. At a former employer. I had heard about Marari. I was a new summer intern, and I think every ten sentences somebody mentioned her name that you got to meet her, and she's great, and and it went on and on, and I'm like. I agree. And I made it my business to meet her and we met and I feel like it was love at first chat. She has been just so instrumental to me as a person across our, gosh, 20 years plus that we've known one another. So let's see the hats I wear. Um, I am a daughter. I'm a parent. I'm a master pantry organizer. I am a, a corporate executive by day. And I would say uh, outside of that, I'm a caregiver. I'm a healthcare decision maker. I, I feel like I've got a lot of hats that I wear and I love them all most days. I just don't want to wear them all at the same time. <laughs> So I'm first generation. My mom is from Jamaica, West Indies. So that is a big part of who I am. My dad was born in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. They met each other in New York. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York and raised on Long Island and lived in New York until my early 20s. And that was just a blessing for me. I come from a big family. I'm a middle sibling. So I always tell everyone I have over 50 first cousins on my mother's side alone. I'm the middle child. So I am used to a lot of conversation all at the same time. I listen to the same story over and over again. No one has figured out that I heard (laughs) the story over and over again. But I think it has served me well, personally and professionally. And I figured out really early that you got to have a voice and a point of view and just figure it out. That's me. You are the Chief Talent and Diversity Officer at Albertsons, and I want to know, we all want to know, what rules did you break to get to where you are in your career? I would say the first rule that I know I broke, like actively broke, is to have agency over my career and just bet on myself. 
And I did that by figuring out what I like, but also figuring out what I don't like. So when people come to you and they talk about different assignments and opportunities, that it is pretty easy for you to say no as a whole sentence. Because I think if you don't know what you want, it's easy to get into a whole lot of mess. <laughs> yes. Courtney is snapping over here. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, can we insert applause? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Thank you. No is a whole sentence. A complete one. No is a whole sentence. Amen. Our next What Rules t-shirts. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So yeah, that was the rule that I broke. My dad was really the one who helped me to figure out that was an important rule to break because he always wanted to travel. He said he knew that when he was really young. And I asked him, how did you know you wanted to travel? And were you scared? And he said, no. And he said, look, here's the rule that I follow. And I want you to think about it too. Go anywhere that you want to, pack the bag. If you like it, great. If you don't, just pack the same bag and leave. It's that simple. That's the rule you follow. Just however you feel, you let that be a compass, you know, whether it's your North Star or like a magnetic North. Because I think magnetic means I could change it all the time instead of a true North. So I owe it to him. Okay. So what, this is a big question, but how do you know what you want? Who? <laughs> um... <laughs> I think you have to sit with yourself and just be a good observer and ask yourself some questions. Just sit down, write it out. I believe in just being a good watcher of what's happening and what people do. So for me, I just watched what was around me. And if I saw a teacher or a coach or a family member, and I'm like, you know what? I like how they talk. I like what they do. I like what they're wearing just started to ask questions or do my own homework. And from there, I just started to craft what I liked. Mm. What would you say to someone who's struggling to get started? Just do it. You do it, do it messy, do it imperfect, right? Look, if you write it down to you, who are you failing? Just you, the pencil, the notebook. I mean, that's kind of it. <laughs> you never have to tell anyone. So like, think of it like that, right? Just first write it down. And then I think it's good to say out loud by yourself. And then hopefully you have at least one person you trust and you maybe share the idea. And I write post-its yeah. everywhere. I wrote post-its in my office on like, words or phrases or things that I think about, but I think there's power to write it down. And I think that the power becomes really powerful when you say it out loud, even if you don't do anything else with it, like you have done something with it. Do you get overwhelmed though? Because I know I'd be having a lot of stickies and notebooks and then I just go back to it later and I'm like, oh, I forgot to do that because <laughs> I feel like I live in overwhelm, but then I'm like, I don't really know yeah. the other way. <laughs> Like, isn't that life? Right. right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is. It's over with. Man, I can't believe you're asking this question. <laughs> I know, but I was just thinking that because I have this, I can't put the camera, but if you look here, like I have all these notebooks yes. that I try to organize myself and then I have to go through all of them and I'm like, oh crap, mm -hmm. I should have put that here. And then I forgot about okay. this. So yes. I have a to-do list. So my big thing is how do you leverage that, right? For your career? Because you write it down, 
you take the chances, but how do you feel it has helped you to, I guess, stay focused and get ahead? I'll write lists. I truly, I write a list and I said, you know what, let me put it the places I visit the most. So I'll put it on the bathroom door and I'll put it on the refrigerator. And on oh, those lists, okay. I would just write the biggest to the smallest, right? It could be small. I want to work out, lose weight, save money, get out of debt, get promoted, whatever it is, like just write it down on the list, even if it's big or small, because what it does is it reminds you of what you said you cared about. And it reminds you what you should talk about to Mm. other people. And it reminds you of what you said you were interested in striving towards. And also when you accomplish it, you could go, yeah, that was good. Now let me add something new to the list. So I, I put what I care about in front of me. I love that you put it in places that you visit the most versus like I put a lot on my desk and then I feel that when I sit down, Mm -hmm. then it's so overwhelming. So I definitely going to take that and put it in because then you're thinking through it versus you just sit here and you're like, oh my God, look at all these notes and all these things that I got to. Maybe putting it on your desk makes it feel like work, you know, like, oh, I got to work. That's true. Instead of like my desires. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Those are two places I kind of visit every day. I'm like, where am I going to go every day? Definitely the kitchen and <laughs> the refrigerator to be exact. The re- right. I didn't say by the dishwasher. I did not say by the sink. I said the refrigerator. Okay. Know your strengths. Know your strengths. <laughs> I love listening to the freedom in your voice as you talk about the journey of figuring out what you want and how you went through this process. It sounds really personal to you. Yeah. And figuring out what you want can be such an intimidating process. That's why a lot of people don't get started, at least through my observation and even in my own experience. And now I have this visual in my head of like, when you said, the only thing you're going to fail is the pen, is the paper. Like, what are they going to do? And I'm just like, wow, I love that. It makes it less intimidating. I'm like, this pen's not going to do anything to me. The paper's not going to jump off and give me paper cuts or something. Like, (laughs) What's going to happen? And I just love that you invite ease and freedom into that process. Mm -hmm. Because it can be hard, like really hard. I had read a book by Tiffany Dufu. It's called Drop the Ball. In the book, she talks about, you know, how she manages life and, you know, et cetera. It's an amazing book. And one thing I would say of the many I took away from it, when you talk about the freedom, I think of it like you have balls, right? We all juggle different things in life. Some balls are glass and some balls are rubber. And if you know which are which, one, you're ahead of the game. So if it's a rubber ball, what's going to happen to the ball? It's going to bounce back up if you drop it. It's going to bounce back up if it falls accidentally. And even if you do it deliberately, like it's coming back to you, right? So that ball's good, right? Mm. And then you have the glass balls. And early in my life and career, I was really afraid of the glass balls. But at some point I said, you know what? If it breaks, sometimes it wasn't meant to be. It's like that Christmas ornament. Not all of them are really cute. (laughs) And even if you love it, and you break it, you could get a new one. So it's kind of nice, right? If you think of life that way and things you like to do, we're all juggling balls. Just know which one are which and how you need to care about them. And if you think of it in a way where you go, 
what's the worst that could happen? And then after that worst happens, what are you going to do? It feels less scary because I think generally we are our own worst critics and we are our own worst Mm. observers of our own life. It's not everybody else. It's all of the, but what if, and if it happened and it's going to go bad. And I try to just say, you know what? Let's say it goes bad. Are any lives lost? Okay. <laughs> I like the way you looked at that crystal ball exercise because I I done it and I do it actually, but I've never thought of the crystal balls like maybe it's supposed to break, and that's okay. I've always felt like oh my god, like this shouldn't break, and there's some things like right? it's so precious. Yes, yes. So that right there was just powerful, like. Because sometimes things break and we dwell on it and try to fix the pieces when in reality, there's a new shiny ball. (laughs) Go get it. Waiting for you. Yes. Yes. So that's powerful. So yeah. Thank you. That's powerful. I'm going to start doing that. And when I share the exercise, (laughs) take from you. That's that's really powerful. Let Let it break. Let it break. I've never never heard this. (laughs) Me neither. What's an example of a glass ball? So my entire life, all the way up through when I was 21 years old, I was absolutely certain I was going to law school. I had a social studies teacher who told me I love to argue, and she thought I would be a good litigator. (laughs) I'm not really sure today if that was a compliment, but we will embrace that (laughs) with love, right? Her intentions were good. Impact, terrible. Um, and I would hear that from different family members, you know, oh, you're always arguing about things and there's always a debate and you have a lot of questions. You should go to law school. You should be a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. And so I started to embrace that idea and I thought, okay, I'm going to go to school to be a lawyer. Absolutely. But I realized after many, many years, and I am not an attorney, was that everybody's dream for me or was that my dream for me. Mm. So I, you know, finished up high school, went to college. I applied to law school. I did not get into the schools that I wanted to get into. And I was very disappointed. I feel like I failed myself. I failed everyone. And that was hard. I felt like that was a glass ball. Like I didn't know if I could recover. And it was, it was just not good for me. But obviously, life has been amazing, and it has been fruitful, personally and professionally. And after that happened, I decided, you know what, I'm going to take a job. So I think I went and worked in commercial real estate. I was a paralegal. I applied again to law school a couple years later, and I got in. Here's the difference. I didn't want to go anymore at that point. And I recognized that my dreams had changed, and what Mm. I thought was a glass ball, it was. But as you said, Morari, it might have been the best blessing for it to break. It wasn't part of what's supposed to be my story. But at the time when you have been told something or you have decided something, you don't have another, I would say, you don't have another game plan. But in the end, because it didn't work out, whatever workout was supposed to be at the time, it felt devastating. Now that I look back at it, I I almost chuckle at the idea that that felt so devastating at the time to me. It felt life ending. Like, I mean, a whole 21 years life ending. Like, (laughs) Um, but it was a big, it was a big deal at the time for me. And, you know, 
life worked out how it was supposed to work out and I pursued a passion and the next go round when I did decide to go back to graduate school, I reverse engineered it. I didn't even know that was what I was doing at the time. But I said, there's three things I know for sure. I do not want to be broke. I want to make sure I feel happy with the career that I select and I want to do it my way. And I knew that was no debates for me. So I approached my process when I was thinking about where to go to graduate school, what I wanted to study. And I said, what job will I want to apply for after I finish school? I am not going to go to school again and just think fluffy, you know, the job's going to find me. I said, no, I need to find this job and let's reverse back. What do I need to study? Where do I want to go to school? How much will the school reputation matter to where I believe I want to be? And I think it turned out okay. I resonate with that so much, the reverse engineering. I had the same mindset going into grad school. I was like, I'm not going for no reason. Um, This isn't just for fun. What's the intention? And I spent a long time figuring out what I wanted before going to grad school. And Elisa reminds me of this all the time. It's okay if you don't have all the answers, but knowing enough counts tremendously. It will, it will propel you forward more than you could imagine. But in that process of figuring it out, like you, I wrote stuff down all the time. I still write stuff down all the time. But I also definitely needed help. Um, and so I'm curious, like, who helped you to really narrow down your list to figure out what you wanted? Did you have mentors? When I look back today, I would certainly say that I had mentors. I didn't realize they were mentors at the time. It wasn't that fancy. It was just people your parents may have told you to talk to or people who took an interest in you, but I didn't even know the concept of a mentor or sponsor or advocate. But I was certainly, some God was looking out for me. I tell you, I had a lot of great mentors, but more than that, when I found my voice to say out loud what I wanted, It was instrumental in one of the biggest pivots for my life, which was going to graduate school. I was working as a waitress and I had shared with a coworker what I wanted to do, which was go back to school. But I was five plus years out of school. I didn't necessarily have the relationships with professors to write a recommendation and some other pieces. And he said, oh, no problem. I'm going to introduce you to my mom. She can help you. I said, I don't know your mother. He said, it doesn't matter. You know me. And he connected me with his mom. And she was such a great mentor who supported me through the application process. And quite frankly, she didn't know me, but she trusted her son. And I think what it taught me very early on, even before a career was a career, was that you have to say out loud what you want because there are a lot of people who want to help you, who can become mentors, who will eventually sponsor you once you see your work and the quality of the person you are but it has to start with you saying out loud to people what you desire so that they can be of assistance to you. I love that. (laughs) I feel like that's a mic drop right there. (laughs) You took the words out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was going to say. So two things with that. One is you never know how someone can truly open a door for you, right? It may not be then, but it's somebody that you know. So being able to be open to that is just... And those relationships are critical because you just never know. Now that you're in corporate America and you found your voice, how did you learn to advocate for yourself in the workplace? I had really great peers. I was fortunate. My first manager, I think he was a great teacher. 
in his own way because he was the first person who just talked to me straight. He was very encouraging of me. He allowed me to be who I was. He didn't ask me to modify how I talk, how I dressed, what I did. And because he gave me that freedom so early in my career, I went with it. So I assumed it was something that was my divine right with every person I worked with afterwards. So I feel really blessed that he allowed me to operate in that space because I didn't know anything different. And that doesn't always happen, but I think that was important. Mm -hmm. And as a leader, that's something I find to be important for me to do, which is when I meet anyone, particularly someone who's early in their career, let them be themselves. Yes, you can provide them guidance, and yes, you can provide them perspective, but you have to let them be themselves. Don't try to make them who you want them to be. Just, I would say, like, you want to nourish who they are already. And I think a lot of times people not with intent, try to mold people in who they think they should be instead of, I always say, bring the superpower out of who they already are. And that is important to me as a leader that I really do support. So as I meet people, I meet them where they at, I encourage them where they are, I know how important it is to allow them to be just as they are. Like I always say, you are just enough as you are. I could sprinkle a little more on you of the great dust to make you <laughs> propel forward. But at your core, it is not your job to change people. It's a job to encourage people. Miradi, you mentor a lot of people. Like, have you ever run into that where you wanted to change them, but you let them be themselves? Or what's been your experience? I think the biggest struggle that I have, sometimes I, I see that they could do so much more, but for them, this is what they want to do. This is their happy place, right? And I think sometimes, and I remember one mentee told me, they're like, we're not you. Like, <laughs> and I was like, I don't want you to be me. They're like, you're trying because you're, you want us to do all these, or you want me in particular, this young woman. And I just saw so much potential. And I could tell you this much. She is today who I thought she would be. I was pushing her and making her uncomfortable instead of allowing her to find herself. And like Monique said, encourage her and sprinkle that motivation, but not in my time. Right. Like mm. I just knew I was like, oh, my gosh, she's going to be all this. And, you know, the, the sister, she's going to do all these great things. And I wanted to accelerate that for her. And that wasn't my job as a mentor. My job was absolutely what Monique said, motivate her, show her, you know, give her the options and open those doors that she she needed, but not to push her on my timeline. Mm -hmm. That was a big learning. And I was so fortunate because I learned how to manage other mentees because of it. That's good. That's real good. I think what you have to really focus on as a leader is where you are, not where you want to be, not where you think they could be. Just be really cognizant of the current state. If I meet someone and I recognize that their confidence maybe isn't at the level that I think it could be at, I just try to ask really good questions. I don't have the answer, but I really think the more expansive question you could ask, the more information you get. And those are data points. And I think when you start to ask the right questions, it helps you to help them 
navigate through whatever path it is that they're choosing to take. So for example, I think it's important to ask people what's going on with them in a meaningful way and an authentic way. I think it's important to ask people What's your destination? Like, if you know, where do you want to land at the end of the day? Because it may surprise you that where you think they should land and where they want to land could be very different. I think the third thing that's really important to do is to listen to what was told to you and work from there. Don't listen to what you've created in your head. Listen to what was actually said to you out loud in real time and do the best possible Confidence is a tricky thing because as quickly as you have it, it can be lost. It is never in one state. I think what's important to do as a leader is if you recognize someone is lacking the confidence, try to understand the why and also be prepared to know if you can support the how. But I think oftentimes people don't know the why behind what's driving the lack of confidence. So instead, what they're doing is trying to fix something, but they have no idea what's broken. So I think you have to really speak to somebody and be genuine about it too, which means you have to hold confidence and you have to be able to be prepared to hear things that could be uncomfortable for you. And that's okay. But I think once you know what's behind the lack of confidence, it helps you to help that individual a lot more swiftly because mm-hmm. now we get into the good stuff. Now, now we're working with what you told me instead of any assumption that I could have. And it might surprise you the things that drive the lack of confidence in people. Yeah. That's why I always mm-hmm. say you need to talk to people. You need to really try to understand about them before you're trying to fix whatever you perceive to be the problem because sometimes we don't really know what the problem is, or if there Mm -hmm. is a problem to solve for. One of the things I found is sometimes they don't even know, but it's those questions that really help you. And what I also heard is questions and listening, because you're listening and going Mm -hmm. from there. Like you said, now this is where it gets interesting. And the last part that I look at it is like planting seeds, right? Sometimes it's just planting those seeds that when, I know it's happened to me that people have said things that when I'm alone, I'm like, well, that meant a lot. And it's, those times where you're lacking the confidence, the flower starts blooming at the end of the day because you're just like, well, I remember Monique told me this. So maybe there's something there instead of just the lack of confidence. We were talking last week about the broken rung and how there's a missed opportunity for women to advance early in their careers. And Courtney said something so profound. And she said, relationships repair brokenness. Yes. And like, we think about this huge, these huge systemic issues of women not advancing, women of color, and everything that you're saying, Monique, like, there's the answer. Like, if managers want to learn how to help people, how to help any woman, especially women of color, advance in the workplace, get to know her and ask her questions and listen and allow her superpowers to shine through You just said it so beautifully, and thank you for role modeling it for us. It's interesting you say that because I spend so much of my time professionally trying to understand how to fix the broken rung. And recently I read an article, and my takeaway is every problem that exists isn't mine to fix. And that's a big aha moment because oftentimes as women and women of color, we presume that every problem 
that is brought to us or every problem someone might be experiencing, we want to fix it. We want to make it right. We want to shift it around, right? And that's a beautiful thing because if someone doesn't do it, it's going to remain a problem. I get it. But I think there's also a time where you have to pause and say, this may not be a problem I need to fix. And quite frankly, this may be a problem and maybe the solution is I need to remove myself from where the problem is and go where I'm being fed, whether that is a team, organization, anything. And I think that we often don't do that because we presume the departure or the decision to be a failure. And quite frankly, there's never a failure with a departure. A departure is just that. It's a moment in time. It's a departure. But off the, that broken rung, oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm going to fight the good fight until there's no more fight left. But I'm also learning to appreciate and recognize, too, that sometimes the best way to fight is to find the space that is embracing you where there is tremendous level of pull and also being cognizant where there is pull or push, I should say, and know, hmm, maybe I'm in the wrong space. I'm not the issue. The space is the issue. And I think that is not something we often embrace often as women and women of color because we are such fierce, determined people that we don't want to do that because we assume that to be a sign of defeat. I love that perspective because that's another way to fix it, right? Okay, you're not going to feed me here. I'm going to go over there and get that promotion over there, right? And I'm going to go and get that next level, um, which is the issue that's happening with the broken rung right. for the last eight right. years. So I love that perspective. There are a lot of gardens out there, a lot of gardens out there. <laughs> Just find where you want to plant your seed and let, and let the flower bloom. There are a lot of gardens. I want to bring us back to where we started in this conversation, which was talking about meetings, <laughs> because whether you're in a great environment or not, you still have to be smart about what you do and the decisions that you make. And so I think I talked to you about this before, Monique, where I was telling you that a lot of women say, well, I didn't get a chance. And like, I didn't get a chance to speak up at a meeting or I didn't get the opportunity. And there's all this stuff around it. And I, I want to hear from you. What would you say to those women who can actually take a next step for themselves and be a little bit more strategic in how they advocate for themselves? Definitely. So the first thing is, if you attend, lead, facilitate a meeting and you feel like, I didn't get a chance, right? If that is how you walk away, it's okay. You know, the first step to being successful is acknowledging what may not have worked and then making the decision how you want to correct it or improve upon it. So I would say to a woman, if you led a meeting or if you participated in a meeting and it didn't go as you expected or it didn't achieve the goal that you had um, desired, I think the meeting, first of all, it's just a point in time. It's not the end. It's not the destination. Even if you had a meeting and all of the ideas that you had, you were told no, I think of no as maybe later, right? And instead it's like of a rubber no, ball. it's a rubber ball, right? No. Oh, you just meant maybe you wanted some more information, oh, right? If you always say no, just means maybe, or no, just means no at that point in time. It's not forever. It's not personal. You don't get emotional about it. Or even if you do get emotional, don't let the emotion overtake you. That is a important space that you have to step into. I think the second is learning the art of effective follow-up. 
let's say what you wanted to communicate wasn't conveyed in a way that you felt proud of or satisfied with, follow up with individuals or an individual in a timely fashion, but really think about the issue, the action, and the outcome. What is it that you're still trying to accomplish? Be really clear. Try to understand when you could get some time with them. But I would also recommend making sure that you are re-preparing for that meeting for a meeting and understanding what matters to the individual who you're following up with, understand what they care about, how they like to be communicated to, when they like to be communicated to, et cetera. And then the third thing is learning to accept that discussion is permitted and welcomed outside of formal meetings, that a formal meeting is just that it's a formality, but it is not the only place you can and should communicate and utilizing the other decision point times as effectively as you can. I think many women, particularly women of color, were not taught that there are so many other communication venues outside of a formal meeting. So we prepare so much for the formal meeting, but we forget that the time in the morning when you're grabbing a coffee or when you are you know, walking up and down a hall in an elevator, you, you know, you name it, at a volunteer event, those are all times you are allowed and encouraged to talk to people about your ideas, to gain advocacy, to gain sponsorship, to pique their interest or ask them, is that, does this sound like a good idea to you? Or what would you change? Or all of the questions that start to ask, say, reel them in, right? Get them excited. Because quite frankly, the most powerful way to get anything done is to, to make the decision maker feel like that's their idea is happening. Like I call it a little Jedi mind tricking. It's so, it's so key. But this can all happen outside of the formal meeting and it is allowed and it should be encouraged and something that you don't miss because oftentimes we assume I blew it, it's over. And it's not. A meeting is just that. It's just to meet at a point in time. It's not the end all be all. How would you advocate once you're in the meeting, right, for yourself or speak up in the meeting? Because that's the other thing we hear, right, is I didn't want to say anything or and then I didn't get a chance or no one called on me. What advice would you give for somebody to speak up? Because I know like for me, I remember people would always say, you're so quiet. You're so quiet. And then little do um, they know. I was Uh, Three things. The first is if you have the same idea more than three times, you need to say something out loud. The audience deserves to hear from you. So if there's an idea or a thought that has gone through your mind at least three times, it is your duty to say something. And it doesn't have to be pretty, but it does need to be said. The second thing I would encourage you to do is to know how long a meeting is going to last for. So if it's a 30-minute meeting, I always say, I need to say something in the first seven minutes. And the way that I prepare myself to speak in the first seven minutes, because I want it to be authentic me, I look through who's been invited to the meeting. I look through who's been who has accepted coming to a meeting. I try to understand what they care about or what's top of mind for them that is not been solved for, that my initiative could help to support in doing. And then more importantly, I really advocate for myself by saying, I have a point of view that's unique and only I have this point of view because I'm me, right? That's what makes me special. 
And I hype myself up. I'm like, there's nobody like you. Right? That's, at the end of the day, that's a fact. There's nobody else like you. So I'm like, yes. there's a little hyping going like, on in my, on my refrigerator. On the, like, there's nobody like you. They don't know what you know. So between those three things where, you know, I think about how much time it is before I speak. Because the longer you wait, the less confidence you can have during a meeting or the quieter you will get. And I have experienced both. So I really try to know how long a meeting is going to last for. The second thing, you know, again, is if I have that thought more than three times, I say it out loud, even if it may not be received well, someone may not think it's smart. You know, I may not think it's smart. Like it doesn't matter. It has to be said. First seven minutes. Okay. I'm going to start paying attention. Like looking at the clock. Well, yeah, you don't have to be a total clock watcher, but you know, if it's a forty-five minute meeting, whatever is got kind of like that first quarter. It's like it's like a sport, right? Sports are in quarters and halves, right? You you always say you got to start strong and finish strong. So that's why I say you have to Mm -hmm. put your voice into the universe early and do it in a meaningful way. Like this, you know, I didn't mention you should be prepared and you should do your homework and you should do your due diligence. Don't just come in in there talking crazy. You got to do your homework, right? Let me be clear. Uh, But yeah, I think it's important. I need you to write a book like tomorrow, right? (laughs) That's, thank you. I received that. Like just honestly, a book of quotes, because I already have like 12 written down and it's only been an hour. So I just, I love how you frame everything and you are really great at taking intimidating topics or concepts and making them very digestible for people to understand, but also it's encouraging for people to experience, to just, I know that earlier you said, just go do it, but you back that up with examples of how that can be done and breaking it down to something as simple as, hey, think of it as a sporting event. You're meeting as a sporting event. You want to go strong in the first quarter. That's like, okay, I can do that. And it's just breaking it down smaller. And so it's not like the biggest meeting in the world. It takes the intimidation out of it. You're not thinking about, oh my gosh, what about the other 20 minutes of the meeting? It's It focuses the mind on just seven minutes. What can you do in seven minutes? And I think that people would receive that as, you know, I can do a lot with seven minutes. The one that resonated with me the most is even if you're in the meeting and they throw a wrench and you don't know what to say, if if you think about it three times, I mean, how many of us have been there? Gosh. Oh, yeah. I know I have. And then I leave the meeting and I probably thought about it a hundred. I couldn't concentrate because <laughs> that whole thing was in my head. You down. Yes. Yeah. You down. And I didn't let it, let out. it out. So <laughs> I, when you said that, I was like, I can't think of a hundred meetings I went through where I walked away and for a whole hour, I thought about the same thing and mm-hmm. I didn't say anything. So that, that one was like, Toma, like here you go. Like so and like Courtney says, so you broke it down so easy. So thank you. Because I well, I'm gonna start saying a lot more if you think I talk now. <laughs> I kind of feel like my takeaway from you is that there are more rubber balls than glass balls than we think. There, yes, obviously there are things that are very important, but your just how Courtney said it, like the way you approach life, there is, I hear the freedom that you have. And I think obviously it's from a lot of lessons learned, but the lessons you've learned are like, you know what? 
tomorrow's a new day. You know what? It's just pencil on paper. And, you know, like, I feel like we could all just be a little bit more free and, you know, all of us get bogged down in our emotions or like thinking about that meeting that didn't go right. And we punish ourselves or we take on the responsibility of the whole organization when really sometimes we just got to leave. <laughs> you said it. Like it, it is not that hard. <laughs> so I think we all need a little bit of Monique in our head. Monique lives everywhere. Yes. As we talked about meeting before the meeting and how to prepare and what to fix, what not to fix, I think what I try to use as my compass is five things. You know, I think when it's all said and done, I try to really leave a little room on my plate too, right? It's important because life is going to be full of surprises. And if you don't leave a little room, when it hits you, it just knocks you down. But if you left a little room, you have some place to land. And I think that's important. You know, the other thing, and Courtney had mentioned it, is that for every yes, there has to be some no's. Because if you say yes to everything, that means that you're saying no to yourself. And you don't want to say no to yourself. So I think you have to be able to know that as you make commitments, as you agree to do things, that something also has to be released. Because if you don't release it, it's just, it could be overwhelming. It can make you frustrated and all the, you know, all the other adjectives I haven't thought of. And then the last two is just find a tribe that honors you. Find a tribe of people, women, who are powerful beings, who love you just as you are, who let you speak freely, who tell you the truth freely, and who also will cheer for you, they cry with you, they listen to you. You know, I just say, who's your, who's your sister circle? Get you some friends who will let you be yourself <laughs> because... The world is not easy. And, you know, if you don't have that sacred, special landing place of friends who can offer that to you, you know, it's hard enough in the world as it is. So I think friendship is so important. And then the last is just set boundaries, you know, communicate, 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 and say just what you can and can't do because you're your best advocate for yourself. So when you set those boundaries and you advocate for yourself, it becomes a way to empower others because as you set the boundary for yourself, it's also establishing clear rules of engagement for others and how they interface with you. That's it. Want more advice on how to break the rules and outsmart the game to advance your career? Check us out on Instagram, YouTube, and our website, whatrulespodcast.com for more insight from our guests and hosts and join our community on LinkedIn where we discuss rule-breaking strategies for multicultural women. What Rules is a project of Zara Consulting and is supported by the amazing team at Stories Bureau. This episode was produced by Alexandra Uresta with editing and music supervision by Joshua Ramsey and was engineered and mixed by Tim Ballant. Our podcast cover was designed by Delion Creative. Visit whatrulespodcast.com for more info, upcoming events, and all episodes of What Rules, including video, and make sure to give us a follow.